Welcome to Evidence-Based Radio. As always, you can find this and previous shows as a podcast on your favorite podcatcher or via the website evidencebasederrata.com. Tonight, we are going to mainly be talking about cephalopods, our friends, the squid, octopus, and cuttlefish. Uh, There's also the nautilus, but I didn't find any interesting uh, stories on them at the moment, Uh, but I'm sure we'll find something eventually. (laughs) And so what I want to do is start out with a bit of a philosophical discussion on consciousness, actually. And so, writing at the conversation, Patricia McCormick, professor of continental philosophy at Anglia Ruskin University, discussed the need for humans to begin to think about consciousness differently, especially when it comes to animals. The article both affirms and challenges my own beliefs on the subject. One of my current struggles is the fact that I eat meat. So far, I've with, I would say, moderate success, uh, have managed to avoid eating mammals and cephalopods. It's been a lot easier to cut cephalopods out of my diet because I know it's never really uh, that committed to eating uh, squid or octopus, but um, I am still sometimes struggling with the mammals, uh, though I have to say plant-based substitutes are definitely coming along and making that easier and easier. And I thank them for that. Um, and in some ways I'm just healthier. So I love eggs Benedict, but now I get eggs Benedict Florentine with, uh, spinach and tomato rather than ham. And I think despite the fact that <laughs> hollandaise sauce is probably terrible for you, I do still feel slightly more healthy. But Part of this has to do with the fact that this is based on the idea that there is a spectrum of consciousness that has basically a cutoff point where some animals are worthy of giving rights and respect more akin to humans and others are not. So in my current uh, spectrum, mammals are off the table, but poultry and fish are still on it other than cephalopods. And so McCormick interrogates the idea of looking at the field of animal cognition in order to place animals along this spectrum. She writes, In my research, I have explored whether we should stop trying to compare other animals with humans to gauge which ones are worthy of better treatment. My work doesn't oppose the study of animal consciousness. It simply asks people to reflect on the reasons we are asking these questions. And so McCormick then references a new paper in the journal Cognition by two German philosophers, Professor Leonard Dung and PhD candidate Albert Neuen of Rohr University in Bochum, Germany who argue for a new framework for assessing animal consciousness. They write, Since the brains, typical behaviors, and cognition capacities of species like macaques, rats, chickens, and octopodes 
differ markedly, it is to be expected that their conscious experience is quite heterogeneous as well. Thus, we are faced with two types of questions. First, the distribution question is about which kinds of animals, or beings generally, have conscious experiences. Second, the quality question concerns the differences between the conscious experiences of various species. It asks not which animals have conscious experiences, but what they experience and how it is experienced, i.e. the content and quality of experience. Now, one of their most important points is that when we look for signs of consciousness that are analogous to humans, we may be missing forms of cognition that are species-specific and not found at all in humans. And of course, there is still the hard problem of consciousness in itself. Since we don't have an answer to where consciousness comes from in humans, and we don't, um, I am obviously a materialist who believes that, you know, without a physical brain, you can't have consciousness. Um, I don't believe in duality, but I also am very clear that we don't yet know exactly how consciousness emerges from the physical structure of the brain. That is just a uh, absolute <laughs> fact at the moment. Um, but because we don't know that, it's hard to tell if we're missing signs of cognition in other beings that might have different brain structures or even similar brain structures, frankly. And so the duo actually outlined 10 central dimensions of consciousness to work with. But um, I decided that would probably take up the entire show to go through. So um, if you want, you can uh, read the paper. Uh, it is out there. It was published in the journal Cognition. Um, and so if you, I believe it's open access. Um, and so if you want to read more, you absolutely can, but I didn't want to bog us down tonight with it. And so getting back to McCormick for a brief moment, she talks as well about the animal rights movement and how there are even there two camps. Some people defend animals based on their similarity to humans, uh, what she calls uh, moral theorists, and the others who believe in animals' innate rights to exist, no matter how we view them. Um, and these are abolitionists. And she points out, though, that both of these positions are still anthropocentric. Both center the moral question in the hands and consciousness of humans. And while we can't escape this fully, we need to do better to recognize and correct for it. One of her examples is our friends, the cephalopods, noting that they have a very different design to their nervous systems. And so if you were just looking for something analogous to humans, it might make us consider it, consider them to be not able to produce consciousness because the octopodes encephalopods are not controlled by a centralized brain. But we know that they have both the ability to feel pain and also sentience, if not higher level consciousness. She concludes, if we are serious about revolutionizing our use of the earth, it is time to rethink our need to classify all forms of life. 
we may find this is not about curiosity, but a desire to vindicate our history of dominion over the earth. How about we exchange hierarchy for care? The future may depend on it. Now, I think there's a lot of good in that statement, but I also think that our desire to catalog all forms of life can be seen more as our attempt to make amends and preserve as many as we possibly can. Um, I don't think that the scientific uh, interest in animals is necessarily, um, for lack of a better term, colonialist. Um, it can be, absolutely. But I also think that there is something to be said for being able to know what's out there so that we don't kill it before we even know it's there. And so, yeah. And of course, that is a, an, that is another huge philosophical discussion, uh, that we could dive into. But, um, I just really thought that this was a interesting and, uh, useful kind of uh, connection to talking about cephalopods because they are really so alien and yet so um, clearly intelligent and uh, very much uh, human-like in many, many ways. <laughs> um, so yeah, so we can segue into a story then that is very much in line with current practices concerning animal cognition. Researchers were able to place a recording device with electrodes into cephalopods in order to record their brain patterns. The paper published in Current Biology by an international team of researchers, including from the University of Naples, Federico II in Italy, and the Okinawa Institute of Science and Technology, or OIST, outlines how they were able to discover a new type of brainwave, as well as brainwaves similar to those in humans, which might give us insight into the evolution of intelligence. The enormous difference between octopuses and us stems from over 550 million years of independent evolution, explains Dr. Michael Kuba, the OIST project leader now at Naples University. Our closest common ancestor probably resembled a flatworm. Now we all know that octopus are smart. They can unscrew jar tops, navigate mazes, track human movements in order to find opportunities to steal fish in aquariums, uh, solve all sorts of other problems. Uh, they can even uh, mimic humans by walking bipedally, uh, lifting six of their legs to sort of have a skirt around them. They use tools. They pick fights with each other. They even lash out against innocent fish so that we've observed octopus apparently just punching fish for no apparent reason. Um, this is a thing that at least one researcher has observed. Um so these are all very human-like attributes. Um, longtime listeners might remember my favorite example of this, who is uh, Oscar, who was a German octopus who uh, several years ago uh, was quite the celebrity 
because he was quite the diva and um, he did all sorts of things. My personal favorite, and I was telling this story the other day to someone and they were like, no, but I looked up the story again and uh, I am correct that one of the things he liked to do was juggle the hermit crabs in his enclosure. (laughs) He also liked to rearrange everything in the enclosure to suit him better. He would uh, climb up into the top of the aquarium and push up the, the cover in order to shoot jets of water at a light because he wanted the light to go off at night. Um, all sorts of crazy things. So yes, octopus are all, are all rather human-like. They have a lot of human-like attributes despite having very different nervous systems and brains. And so they do have a central brain, but in addition, each arm has its own neuron bundle of around 10,000 neurons dedicated, dedicated to sensing the surroundings. And so because wild octopus can be elusive, most researchers study captive octopuses, but even a captive octopus is hard to use for this kind of research. Since the octopuses have eight ultra-flexible arms that can reach any part of their body and have a soft body with no skull to anchor the recording equipment, the challenge of this project was to realize a new equipment that was out of reach, said Dr. Anna DiCosmo, a professor at the University of Naples, because if it was on the animal, it could easily rip it off. So they figured out a device that could be implanted into the animal's. We developed a new engineering solution, able to record signals underwater using small and lightweight data loggers originally utilized to track the brain activity of birds during flights, DeCosimo added. The trackers were inserted into the head just between the eyes of the three test subjects. The electrodes were implanted into an area of the octopus's brain called the vertical lobe, and median superior frontal lobe, DeCosmo said, which is the most accessible area and considered important to control learning and memory processes. Now, the octopus were anesthetized during the procedure and allowed to recover for 12 hours while they were monitored via special uh, video equipment. Now, even though they weren't running any tests, the researchers saw interesting brain patterns even during this time. The signatures were long-lasting, slow oscillations that have not been described before, DeCosmo explained. But since they weren't asking the octopus to do anything specific, they don't know what they're associated with. They do know that they do seem to be unique to octopus. But others mimicked those found in mammals such as humans. Some of these activity patterns have some similarity to activity patterns observed in the mammalian hippocampus, also a memory center, first author Tamar Gutnick, a visiting scientist at the University of Naples, told Live Science. But we also observed unique patterns, two hertz activity, that were never reported in other animals. We now had an opportunity to observe memory formation in the octopus and compare it to mammals, to identify common motifs 
or distant idiosyncrasies in brains that have developed completely independently, Gutnick added. The project gave us a chance to study brains with complex behaviors and cognition that are evolutionarily separated from vertebrates by at least 500 million years. Kuba added, this gives us a chance to see general principles of how brains need to work to be considered intelligent. And so they now want to move on to studying other octopus species, including octopus vulgaris, which is the octopus you mainly see in aquaria, and to repeat the experiment using memory and learning tasks to try to correlate specific brain patterns to the activities. Because again, they didn't actually ask them to do anything specific. So those brain patterns were just kind of what they were doing as they were recovering and swimming around in their enclosures. And so one of the big things about all of this that we're going to uh, be kind of understanding is that researchers are interested in uh, cephalopod brains because it can tell us things about our own brains. And that's kind of another reason why I brought up that um, discussion at the beginning, because there is a question on, um, and I don't have an answer, uh, <laughs> as to whether or not we really should be experimenting on um, cephalopods in this way in order to be trying to have a proxy for human brains when we wouldn't do this for humans. Um, some of the things we would not do for humans, some we would. Um, and I think that that's okay. And so just as a complete aside, um, well, not a complete aside, but America actually doesn't have the kinds of protections for cephalopods in research that they do in places like Europe and I believe Japan also has, maybe not Japan, it was somewhere else. I'm sorry, I've forgotten. But uh, Japan is notoriously bad, actually, <laughs> for its treatment of uh, creatures of the deep and the not so deep. And um, yeah, whale researchers, quote unquote. But anyways, we are getting off track. But um, it is important to note that uh, many of these uh, papers come from uh, researchers working in Europe who do have sort of more tight controls. But it's just kind of a note that America does not have any kind of protections for cephalopods. And that doesn't mean protection in the sense that you can't experiment on them at all. It's just that there should be specific ideas about how you can um, work with them because they are uh, classified as invertebrates and invertebrates do not have the same protections as vertebrates. Um, so just food for thought. <laughs> and um, so researchers at Woods Hole, on the other hand, are attempting to study the brain by creating a specific genetic tag that would light up during different brain activities. The entire genome of the two-spotted octopus was sequenced in 2015, so that should be possible. 
And at Dartmouth College, researchers, along with colleagues at the Max Delbruck Center in Berlin, are exploring the possibility of genetic similarities related to intelligence. They recently published a paper in Science Advances, finding that octopuses have a large number of microRNAs in their neural tissue, which is also found in vertebrates such as humans. So they posit that these microRNA sequences could be important to developing or supporting higher order brain function. And again, the majority of this work has thus far been done on captive octopus. But the end goal for most researchers is to better understand how octopus behave and live in their natural habitats. As Kuba stated, to understand octopuses and proof of their intelligence is helping octopuses in the wild as people will treat them with in- interest, care, and respect, which again circles back to our opening discussion and places them firmly in the anthropocentric model. And, you know, that's where most people are right now. Um, and if that helps us preserve cephalopods, Frankly, I'm okay with that um, because I think it's more important to uh, sort of save the animals that we want to treat differently before we talk about how we need to treat them differently in really deep philosophical ways instead of just like, please stop eating them, um, please stop torturing them kinds of ways. Uh, Okay, so let's move on now and talk Uh, a little bit more about how cephalopods evolved to be the intelligent, uh, cheeky animals that they are today. So octopus share a common ancestor with mollusks, such as slugs and snails. And two papers in Nature, one from Harvard and one from UC San Diego, both shed clues as to how these crafty critters developed their abilities. Both looked at how cephalopod nervous systems adapt to sense their marine environments. They focus on a family of chemotactile receptors in their arms that evolved and adapted over time to their environment. So chemotactile basically means they can both, uh, they have combined uh, touch and taste together. So yeah, again, they're very different from us. And so the first of the papers by the researchers, uh, by the research team, so they were actually kind of working in conjunction with one another. Uh, The first one describes how the octopus repurposed ancestral neurotransmitter receptors for detecting external environments. They found that these chemotactile receptors evolved from acetylcholine neurotransmitters, like those found in humans, in our brains, and in our uh, central nervous system. But instead of sensing neurotransmitters, these have evolved to be able to detect relatively insoluble, greasy molecules called terpenes. They use their arms for taste-by-touch contact, dependent aquatic exploration of crevices in the seafloor, said senior investigator Nicholas Bologno, associate professor in the Department of Molecular and Cellular Biology at Harvard. That is a really fancy way to say that they walk around and uh, sense both taste and touch by basically 
moving their arms around on the seafloor. Um, but anyways, the team was able to create using cryo-electron microscopy, a model of the 3D structure of the octopus chemotactile receptors, and then were able to compare it to the acetylcholine receptor. They found that the overall form of the receptors was similar, but the binding pocket of the octopus receptor, although in a similar spot than the ancestral neurotransmitter sticks to, is very different. Bologno said of the large, sticky surface. And we discovered that the binding pocket is under evolutionarily, evolutionary selective pressure. And so this evolutionary pressure is enough to transform the receptor from a neurotransmitter to a chemosensor for the sense of taste and smell via changing a part of the protein to adjust the form and function of the receptor. And so this makes a lot of evolutionary sense. It's definitely small incremental changes that lead to a big change in the end. And this again makes sense because octopus feel around for their prey. So being able to detect molecules that stick to underwater surfaces, such as crab shells or their own eggs, is ideal. But apparently they don't like all such chemicals. In one experiment, an octopus's arm crawled off the measuring apparatus and right out of the bath when they, uh, came into, when it came into contact with one of the, uh, sticky chemicals. So that was interesting. Now, the second paper by structural biologist Ryan Hibbs, then at Texas Southwestern Medical Center at Dallas, looked at squid and cuttlefish, which are ambush predators. And so they use their eight arms and two tentacles to grab and reel in food. Um, so just a reminder, uh, tentacles are only these sort of longer or specialized um, arms, for lack of a better other word, um, of squid and octopus and uh, cuttlefish. And so like the arms that they use to grab things and um, they're the eight arms, the eight appendages, appendages, that's the word I'm looking for. The eight appendages are called arms and they generally only have two tentacles. So um, I know it's a, it's a nerd thing, but when people talk about, you know, tentacles and thinking of arms, just, you know, gently correct them. <laughs> if you want to, you don't have to. <laughs> but anyways, <laughs> it turns out that the squid's receptors are more like taste buds. They have been adapted to sense bitterness. And the researchers suggest that bitterness may be a sign of toxic or unappetizing prey, and therefore uh, it should be released. So if it you clamp onto it and it tastes bitter, let it go. In this case, there were few res fewer receptors than in the octopus, and they looked more like the neurotransmitter binding pocket in that it can bind more hydrophilic molecules, said Bologna. We see this difference between the octopus and squid as reflecting an evolutionary timeline and adaptation, adaptation where we see transition from neurotransmission 
in acetylcholine receptors to soluble bitter taste in the squid to the most recent innovation of taste-by-touch sensing of insoluble molecules in octopus. This is an entirely new sensory system, said Maud Baldwin, an evolutionary biologist at the Max Planck Institute for Biological Intelligence in Sivisen, Germany, who was not involved in the work. Together, these papers offer unprecedented insight into how sensory systems evolve, she added. It greatly enhances our understanding of how proteins evolve in general, as well as how proteins and even organisms can develop new functions. So yeah, that is very, very cool. All right, we are at that time where we should take a break do some show promos and some PSAs. And when we come back, we will talk more about octopus arms and how unique they are. Do stay tuned. You are listening to Evidence-Based Radio. Outbreaks of whooping cough or pertussis are happening across the United States. This serious respiratory disease can be deadly for babies. By getting the whooping cough vaccine called Tdap during the third trimester of each pregnancy, Women can pass antibodies to their babies to help protect them until they're old enough to receive their own vaccine. Learn more at cdc.gov slash pertussis slash pregnant. That's pertussis, P-E-R-T-U-S-S-I-S. Table of Contents is a weekly music program that assembles an assortment of songs and sounds of many genres, and which may entail literally taking a random collection of musical sources off the shelf and giving them a turn on the table or spin in a CD or tape player. Each week presenting shows which can at times be organized orderly and at other times perhaps be not as much so, yet never dull. Tune in Friday nights, 10 p.m. till midnight on WXOJ LP, Northampton 103.3 FM. There are everyday actions to help prevent the spread of respiratory diseases. Wash your hands. Avoid close contact with people who are sick. Avoid touching your eyes, nose, and mouth. Stay home when you are sick. Cover your cough or sneeze. Clean and disinfect frequently touched objects with household cleaning spray. For more information, visit cdc.gov COVID-19. This message brought to you by the National Association of Broadcasters and this station. Hey, this is Wendy, host of Valley Free Radio's subculture music program, featuring new wave, post-punk, indie, and electronic music from the 70s to today. Join me every Friday night from 8 to 10 p.m. here on WXOJ, or stream it live from your favorite listening device at valleyfreeradio.org. The Forbes Library staff would like to remind you of the incredible resource that you have in your local public library. We have tens of thousands of books for you to check out, music CDs, movies, newspapers from around the region, the state, and the country. We have a wide variety of magazines and free computer and internet access every day. We also have our incredible reference services there to help you answer particularly vexing problems. All of this is free, locally available at 20 West Street in Northampton. So come by and check us out in person or at www.forbeslibrary.org or call 587-1011 for more information. 
In our polarizing political climate, it's become difficult to find shows willing to discuss, much less listen to, different points of view. Our job is to talk about things we hope you'll find interesting without all the shouting. To disagree without being disagreeable. To provide incisive factual commentary that cuts through the weekly spin cycle and aims to enlighten, not enrage, our listeners. So tune in for Civil Politics, Friday evenings at 7 here on Valley Free Radio or anytime at civilpoliticsradio.com. And we are back. You are listening to Evidence Based Radio. And as noted, other researchers are examining octopus arms to study their unique properties and anatomy. Their arms are so mobile. They're soft and they can bend and twist and do all sorts of things, said Melinda Hale, a biologist at the University of Chicago. In a study in Current Biology, she and her colleagues report on their investigation of the anatomy of young octopus bimacaloides or the California two-spot octopus. The small octopus are about the size of a big tic-tac, according to lead author Adam Kuspala, or Kuspalu. The team examined the octopus intermuscular nerve cords, which contribute to whole arm movement and contain multiple types of neurons. These nerve cords are an important piece of invertebrate anatomy that Hale notes has often been ignored in octopus. Other parts of the arm nervous system were really well described, but those are just left a mystery, Hale says. Under microscopic scrutiny, they found that one type of nerve cord, the cord closest to the suckers, ran both along the length of the arm, but also extended down the arm two arms away. All eight arms had this anatomical quirk. Hill notes that it was totally different from anything we'd ever seen before. They'd expected the structure to mimic the central ring formed by larger peripheral nerves. Kuspalu suggests that the reason is as simple as mathematical efficiency. Now, currently, it's not known if the cords communicate or send signals across the body, but that is the author's next plan to explore. We can now approach our anatomical and behavioral studies a bit differently, with more focus on what any one arm is doing in concert with more distant arms in the ring, says Roger Hanlon, a researcher at the Marine Biological Laboratory and a frequent collaborator with Hale's group. We are in the intriguing, mild state of confusion that is simultaneously perplexing and exhilarating when unexpected discoveries are revealed. Okay, so let's move on now and talk about how you can identify an individual octopus. For many species, species, this may be impossible due to their ability to change their pattern and textures to mimic a wide variety of plants and animals in the ocean. I'm sure you've seen a video or two on the internet about um, where an octopus, there's no octopus in the scene, and then suddenly there is an octopus in the scene. And it was just so well camouflaged that you could not see it at all for the life of you. 
Um, I know there was a really famous one that went around maybe five or six years ago. And so for those octopus, it may be just a lost cause, but a few species seem to have distinct striping patterns that may help researchers track individuals both in labs and importantly in the wild. And this could lead them to becoming a model organism for studying octopus behavior. Now, previous work on the Wonderpus octopus uh, or Wonderpus photogenicus shows that they have stripes that stay with them throughout their lives and can change hue but not position. These are cute little uh, octopus that have really long skinny arms. Um, of course, hence the name Photogenicus. Um, and so researchers at UC Berkeley were wondering if another small octopus, the Lesser Pacific Striped or Zebra Octopus, Octopus, octopus Shershier, would also be found to have a unique stripe pattern. Originally, we were just trying to figure out how to breed them in captivity. But we noticed that all of the individuals looked different and we could easily identify them by their stripe patterns, even if they escaped from their labeled jars into the larger tank, explained researcher Benjamin Leo, Leo Song, Samitra Kelkar, and Anne Ramji. Dr. Roy Caldwell, our mentor and the principal investigator of the lab, recommended that we investigate whether this could be useful to the study of this species. Now, a former graduate student of Caldwell's had actually done the study on Wonderpus, so they were very much aware of this. The team wanted to look at the zebra octopus because they are unusual. They're actually very interestingly unusual. Most octopus only live between one and three years and have one clutch of eggs. And of course, this is why I always say that they haven't taken over the planet <laughs> because they don't live long enough to organize and uh, manage to actually figure out how to take the planet over from us weird, uh, destructive humans. But, um, you know... <laughs> And so obviously the other problem is that it makes studying genetic lineages difficult in the lab. But the small zebra octopus can live up to eight years, which is like crazy for an octopus. And they produce a clutch of eggs every 30 to 90 days. And luckily enough, it turns out that they do indeed show the same kinds of individualized patterning. We noticed that the baby octopuses we were raising seemed to retain the same stripe pattern from the age that the stripes are first visible. The stripe pattern never shifted. It just grew proportionally to the animal and every baby octopus we raised and observed. We thought this was interesting and worth reporting and possibly useful to the potential study of this species, life history, and ecology in the wild. And so the team looked at 25 of the 156 octopus in the lab 
and took photos of their striped patterns, which appear when they are five days old. They then asked 38 volunteers to look at the pictures and see if they could notice differences in pairs of octopus. It turns out that the volunteers were indeed able to make out differences that can be used to track the animals. Overall, they found distinct differences 84% of the time, and over half found differences at a rate of 90% or higher. Apparently, there was one not terribly observant person, potentially, who uh, dragged down the uh, statistics. Um, but, you know, that is an interesting quirk about humans is that some humans are better at that than others because brains are weird. Um, and that's kind of the thesis of this entire thing is that brains are weird and cephalopod brains are even weirder. <laughs> The dominant stripes are landmarks on the skin, explains Dr. Zi Yan Wang, an assistant professor of biology at the University of Washington. Um, and I believe that is the person who did the work on the Wonderpus. They are dynamic in the sense that they can get darker or lighter. But as far as we know, the particular stripes themselves are permanent. Um, Oh, sorry. Wang and her team were one of the first groups to successfully raise these octopus in the lab in 2021. I shouldn't try and get ahead of myself. Cephalopods have been really, really important to the study of physiology and the study of neurobiology and behavior for a really long time, explains Wang. A historical example is looking at mechanisms of the action potential in muscle tissues that came from studies of the giant of the squid giant axon, she notes. Now, Wang and her colleagues have begun making the case that this animal, the zebra octopus, could become a model animal for studying animal intelligence and behavior. The team at UC Berkeley believes that this finding could have important conservation implications. One implication is the capacity to apply photo identification methods to studies of wild octopus shirchiae. We hope that our work will open the door for future non-intrusive, non-harmful, non-extractive studies to learn more about these fascinating animals. And so that is a big thing because right now, in order to study them, you have to take them out of their natural environment and put them in labs. And A, there's ethical issues about that. And B, there's always issues of do animals work differently in the lab versus in um, the wild? And so there is definitely that consideration. And so... Obviously, the better that we are at tracking and observing animals in the wild, the better we can be at preserving them. The knowledge gained from future photo identification studies of wild populations could help inform when and where to collect new individuals to help maintain the genetic diversity of captive bred populations while minimizing the impact on the wild populations, the UC Berkeley researchers concluded. Okay, let's move on to learning more about uh, cephalopod camouflage. So a group of researchers at the University of California, Irvine, 
we're actually able to successfully replicate the tunable transparency of some squid cells into mammalian cells. Now, this is important because researchers have been unable to culture cephalopod skin cells in the lab. So basically, they are unable to take uh, skin cells from a cephalopod and have them basically grow and uh, and divide and become larger colonies in the lab. So a lot of work is done on cell cultures, which are, you know, um, basically petri dishes full of small colonies of cells rather than using cells in vitro um, or in vivo. This is in vitro. Um, sorry about that. And so transferring their properties into mammalian cells that can indeed be cultured is a step toward both better understanding the skin the squid skin's unique properties, but may also aid in better understanding of cells as a whole. So it turns out that this actually has some good benefits for those mammalian cells as well. Elon Gorotsky, PhD, and his research group have been developing materials inspired by squid for years. They had already created, quote, invisibility stickers, where they took bacterially produced squid reflectin proteins and added them to sticky tape. <laughs> so then we had this crazy idea to see whether we could capture some aspect of the ability of squid skin tissues to change transparency within human cell cultures, says Godorotsky. They focused their work on leucophores, which have particularly particulate-like nanostructures composed of reflectin proteins that scatter light. Leuctophores can appear bright white by scattering light off of the nanoparticles, which are made of clumps of reflectin. We wanted to engineer mammalian cells to stably, instead of temporarily, form reflectin nanostructures for which we could better control the scattering of light, said Goderetsky. When cells al allow light without much scattering, they appear transparent. But with that light scattering added, they are more opaque and visible. Then, at a cellular level, or even the culture level, we thought that we could predictably alter the cell's transparency relative to the surroundings or backgrounds, he says. And so, Georgi Bogdanov a graduate student in Goderetsky's lab introduced squid-derived genes that encode for reflectin in human cells. The cells were then able to produce the protein. A key advance in our experiments was getting the cells to stably produce reflectin and form light-scattering nanostructures with relatively high refractive indices, which also allowed us to bring better image allowed us to better image the cells in three dimensions, says Bogdanov. The team added salt to the cell's culture medium and observed that the proteins began to clump into nanostructures as predicted. Bogdanov, Bogdanov then got detailed time-lapse 3D images of the nanostructure's properties. But then the pandemic hit. So he took to his computer to develop com computational models that could predict the level 
of light scattering and transparency without testing. It's a beautiful loop between theory and experiment, where you feed in design parameters for the reflected nanostructures, get out specific predicted optical properties, and then engineer the cells more efficiently for whatever light scattering properties you might be interested in, he explained. The work has already given experiment experimental-weight-to-weight hypothesis that reflectant nanoparticles disassemble and reassemble to change the transparency of tunable squid leuctophores. Such movement has been observed in the mammalian reflectin by using salt to tune the concentrations. And again, beyond learning more about squid, reflections, reflectins may be able to be used as genetically encoded tags that would not bleach inside human cells. Reflectin as a, as a molecular probe provides a lot of possibilities to track structures in cells with advanced microscopy techniques, adds Bogdanov. And so they propose that imaging approaches based on their work could help elucidate our understanding of both cell growth and development. Let's not neglect the wonderful cuttlefish. And so let us now turn to talk about a recent effort to map the cuttlefish brain by researchers from the University of Queensland. Researchers from the Queensland Brain Institute have mapped the cuttlefish brain structure and neuronal network. Much of our understanding of the cuttlefish brain has been based on a single species, the nocturnal European common cuttlefish, lead author Dr. Wen Sung Chung from QBI's Marshall Lab said. We wanted to fill in the gaps of this knowledge by focusing on selected cuttlefish, which are active during the day, and further compare with other species from the Mediterranean and Indo-Pacific regions. By looking at both the anatomy of the brain, as well as using MRIs, the team was able to track changes in the visual and learning brain regions. They then compared these results with other cuttlefish species in order to create a map of the connectivity of neurons in the brain. What we discovered was the neuronal network, which involved chemosensory function and body patterning control, which enables the cuttlefish to use in foraging and its camouflage, Dr. Chung said. We also discovered that the brain adaptations reflect the requirement of their daily life regarding ecology and habitats. The map of the brain structure could not only help researchers to learn more about the evolutionary pathways of brain development in cuttlefish and other cephalopods, but could again influence research into human brains as well. So once again, we are coming back to, it's really cool to learn about cephalopods, but also what can it tell us about us? <laughs> oh dear. All right. Um, let's move on now and talk about just a really cool squid. So cockeyed squid are really weird looking, but they are perfectly adapted to their preferred ecological niche. 
They live hundreds of meters below the waves, but at the boundary of two worlds. Above them is the faintest of sunlight filtering through the blue water, and below them is the inky depths. So they have two very different eyes. The eyes are identical when the squids are born, but the left eyeball grows much faster and eventually turns into a structure with a long tube, often with a bright yellow lens. This eye helps the predator search for food above it, looking for dark silhouettes of prey and also, obviously, predators. The yellow color filters out background light and breaks the camouflage of glowing animals trying to use their blue bioluminescence to blend into the blue ocean water. The right eyeball is less than half the size of the left and is used to scan for flashes of bioluminescence in the deep below. It's a lovely example of how they exploit and inhabit those two very different environments, says John Ablett, senior curator of mollusks at the Natural History Museum in London. Histiotuthis heteropsis has been known for decades, but they have shown up recently in some of the footage from deep sea explorers. And so if you have not uh, yet heard my siren call for how amazing and cool it is to be able to view the footage from uh, deep sea rovers, you can find uh, a couple of different ones on YouTube, totally free, totally cool. Um, one of them, at least if you go to their website, they are often live streaming so you can interact with them. Um, as they are actually maneuvering around, you can ask questions. It's so cool. And I've actually seen, um, some of these guys on that footage myself. Now they are also called the jewel squid or jeweled squid because when illuminated by ultraviolet light, the body of the squid which is actually only about the size of your finger. It looks huge in the videos, but it's actually quite tiny <laughs> when it comes down to it. Uh, it twinkles all over with ruby red spots. I feel like they look kind of like a strawberry, um, but the seeds would rather be a little bit whiter. Um, when you get within about 15 centimeters, suddenly everything grows red. And the closer you go, the stronger the color is, says James McLean, senior curator of fish at the Natural History Museum, who brought a UV torch on an expedition to see which animals perform this trick. It's really dramatic, he says. And so um, apparently he did this with several things. And so uh, the... Uh, Jewel squid actually obviously does this, but he found that lantern squids do not, um, and that another deep sea denizen, the viper uh, fish, does. So it's interesting to know um, why some of them do and some of them don't, because the red dots are uh, photophores or light emitting organs, which actually go blue in the dark waters in which the squid live. They only show up red. Uh, when 
curious humans show up to take a look at them because UV light doesn't actually usually reach that far down. And so uh, that red light kind of doesn't happen for them ever, um, which is interesting uh, that it's actually something that basically only you would see if you were looking at it uh, using a UV light. And so they most likely use that blue light to disguise their silhouette, just like the prey that they are trying to uh, find when they are looking above. Though it could also be to attract a mate or for communication. It's possible all of these reasons, says Albert, a little bit of camouflage, a little bit of sexual selection, and a little bit of attracting prey. And I feel like that's kind of a good summary for cephalopods altogether. Um, so yeah, I think they are one of the most fascinating and interesting uh, groups of animals out there. Um, I know that they are not, they're, they're ga gathering their strength, but I think that, you know, there's a lot of other prestige animals that still get a lot more press and a lot more, um, you know, people talking about things like not eating them and preserving them. Um, but yeah, uh, we unfortunately don't really think of a lot of sort of common uh, octopus and common uh, squid as being things that we really should be maintaining because of their potentials. Um, and of course, they basically are in that same category with everything in the ocean, um, minus the uh, large mammals. So, you know, uh, other than the mammals that are in the ocean, pretty much any kind of fish or mollusk or cephalopod um, or any of those are going to be kind of characteristic, characterized in the uh, whatever pile, um, which is really unfortunate. And of course, I will also mention uh, as we wrap up the fact that there's still so much of the ocean that we haven't even had a chance to explore. So maybe there are other even cooler octopus and squid that we've yet to meet. And I look forward to that. All right. That is all the time we have for tonight. Thank you so much for listening to Evidence Based Radio. Evidence Based Radio is a member of the Planetside Podcast Network. To learn more, go to planetsidepodcasts.com. The theme song is Widgen by Bird Boy. Purchase the full song at smarturl.it slash birdboy.